So, welcome to the fourth lesson of Warrior to Warrior. Or Warrior to Warrior. I can't get the accent right, but it's alright. And in today's lesson, we're going to discuss negative emotions. Just as a quick uh, shadow, just a reminder, we do record the lessons, and now you can even get it on Spotify or on any podcast way you listen to it. If you listen to your podcasts on your Windows or your Android, any way you listen to podcasts, you can listen to the last three classes are listed there, so it's an easier way to listen to the classes. If you missed it, or if you just want to review it or share it with somebody else, feel free. Um, there are no ads in it yet. <laughs> um, so, let's get back to today's class. We're going to just talk about negative emotions that come from suffering, hardship, pain, tragedy. And this will be the last lesson that we're going to be talking about negative emotions. And that's why we left the hardest for the last. Um, in the next two lessons, we're going to focus more on positive emotions and relationships. <coughs> now we're still talking about getting rid of the negative emotions and how we can use our divine consciousness, our divine soul, to help us get rid of those negative emotions. Unfortunately, I don't think there's anybody in this room or anybody that you know of who hasn't gone through some type of suffering in some type of way. We are all... Have uh, waiting for Mashiach, which then will usher in a time of ultimate tranquility, peace, happiness, and no suffering whatsoever. But unfortunately, we all know too well that until that day comes, suffering is seemingly part of the fabric of society. It's part of life. The question is only, isn't if, but how we cope with life's hardships. Hardships and pain, of course, of course, cause us to have negative emotions. When we have hardships, pain, and suffering, that automatically causes us to have anxiety, fear, worry, anger, jealousy, when we perceive that there are people that have life easier than us, and all these type of negative emotions that come to us because of pain and suffering. And as we learned in Lesson 1, when we have these negative emotions, they cripple us. They don't allow us to do what we are meant to do, emotionally, spiritually, and practically. So as we have mentioned, so uh, talking about the, uh, pain and suffering, which cause negative emotions, what we're going to do today, and the question is that we're going to ask, and our main question that drives our class today, is how to maintain happiness in a time of hardship. How do I maintain having a positive outlook? How do I have that good positive emotion when we have issues with livelihood, health, family, and anything else you just add to the list of things that may be disturbing us, and we have to worry about the future of what we'll all bring in any of these areas, how does one maintain happiness, positive emotion in any of these things? As we already know from our previous lessons, the Tanya's approach and roadmap to this is that all negative emotion, all the negative emotions can be identified and ultimately sidelined and resolved by identifying a way that we can align ourselves and our life with our divine soul. And our question for today is going to be, as you can see on page 138, the question for discussion that we're going to start with today is how can a living divine soul aligned life alleviate any emotional fallout from hardship? So based on what we've learned before, we know that we have to live a divine according and aligned with our divine soul. How does that help us from any type of emotional fallout from any hardship that we have? 
And what we're going to see today, we're going to take four different paradigms and four different ways of how we can counter these negative emotions, and each one climbing the ladder on a more greater and healthier and better, and of course, more difficult way to be able to do it. So let's start off with a story. And the story is as follows, and I'm sure you've heard the story before. If anybody has come to Chabad in the past 15 years, I've probably said the story more than once, but let's read it inside regardless. Text number one, page 139. A man once came to Rabbi Dovber, the famed Maggid of Mizrich, with a question. The Talmud tells us, asked the man, that a person is supposed to bless God for the bad just as he blesses him for the good. How is this humanly possible? How can a human being possibly react to what he experiences as bad in exactly the same way he responds to what he experiences as good? How can a person be grateful for his troubles as he is for his joy? Rabbi Dovber replied, To find an answer to your question, you must go to my disciple, Reb Zusha of Anipali. Only he can help you in this matter. Reb Zusha was received his dress warmly and invited him to make himself at home. The visitor decided to observe Reb Zusha's conduct before posing his question. Before long, he concluded that his host truly exemplified the Talmudic dictum which so puzzled him. He couldn't think of anyone who suffered more hardship in his life than did Reb Zusha. Why? Reb Zusha was a frightful pauper. There was never enough to eat in Reb Zusha's home. And his family was bereft, beset, I'm sorry, with all sorts of affliction and illness. Yet Reb Zusha was always good-humored and cheerful and constantly <coughs> expressing his gratitude to the Almighty for all his kindness. But what is the secret? How does he do it? The visitor finally decided to pose his question. So one day he said to his host, I wish to ask you something. In fact, this is the purpose of my visit to you. Our Rebbe advised me that you can provide me with the answer. What is your question? asked Rebbe Zusha. The visitor repeated what he asked the Magid. You raised a good point, said Rebbe Zusha, after thinking the matter through. So Rebbe Zusha proceeded to answer the person the question. His question was, the Mishnah tells me I need to bless God for the bad just as if I bless God for the good. He asked, how is it possible for me to bless God for the good or for the bad just as I bless God for the good? It's seemingly impossible. He asked this question to Reb Zusha, who was a person who was definitely suffering. There is no way out of it. He had not enough food on his house. He had, his, he had illnesses in his family. His wife didn't treat him with the greatest respect. He wasn't the person who was your ideal person who was living a happy life. And he asked this Reb Zusha the question. If you were Reb Zusha, how would you respond? Anybody? Let's see if anybody remembers the story from all the times I say it. <laughs> Taking the concept of your divine soul, if you were Reb Zusha, how would you respond? So let's go to Rabbi Zusha and let's hear what his response was. And here's what Rabbi Zusha's answer was. Rabbi Zusha says, you know, you raise a good point. But he says, why did the Rebbe send you to me? How would I know what suffering means? That was Rabbi Zusha's response. He said, he should have sent you to someone who is suffering. Why did he send you to me? 
So let's analyze Rav Zusha's answer over here for a moment. What was Rav Zusha's attitude? Did Rav Zusha not experience suffering? Was it possible that you walked into this person's home, there was not enough food on the table, his children were ill, there wasn't a happy home, so to speak, from a physical, seemingly way, there was suffering physically tangible in the home. How did Rav Zusha not experience any suffering? And to make it even, question even a little deeper, if Rav Zusha was able to do it, does it mean that we can do it? Is this a normal way that people should feel? Be ignoring true suffering? Was he just living in oblivion? Was he not living with reality? Was he smoking something? What was going on? Anybody? Um, does anybody, let me take it a step further, does anybody think that Rebzusha's ideal is unattainable? No. Okay. Everybody thinks we can get there. Okay, great. Uh, nobody ever told him he should be judging what he's going through. Okay, so he shouldn't be judging what he was going through. Well, just that, like, nobody ever told him he should be suffering. But if, if you were to take this physical suffering and uh, look at it, and you see the guy doesn't have bread to put on his table, is that not called suffering? I'm just wondering. Okay. Is there any perspective that you can say that not having bread is not suffering? I wouldn't call it. Is there anybody in their right mind who would say not having bread is luxury? Well, it's beautiful. But there's the perspective that, like, if you're there, then you actually are surviving. Okay. I think it's the same, but opposite. When you have teenagers, especially girls, they no matter how blessed they are, they complain about everything. Okay, we're going to get to that about entitled about what you expectations versus yeah. needs. We spoke about that in lesson number. In lesson number two, we spoke about one of the reasons why people have most negative emotions is where they have expectations versus their needs, and when their expectations become too high. But we're going to talk about that. But what we see over here is Rav Zusha was a unique individual. And it's important that we hear Rav Zusha's answer. It's because this is what we're going to talk about, looking at the different paradigms and seeing which one Rav Zusha would fit. And over here we see is Rav Zusha's answer was, how would I know? He should have sent you to someone who experienced suffering. He did not see what was happening to him as suffering. Okay? So, so let's move on. So before we continue, I just want to make three important disclaimers. Number one, the lesson contained that we're going to talk about today is all based on Torah, Talmud, and Tanya, because I myself... Baruch Hashem, I continue to count my blessings. I cannot never, and I will never, fathom the extent of other people's pain and suffering. As much as I talk and counsel and see people in happiest times and not in the greatest times in life, you are only there to hold their hand, to guide them. But I can never fathom somebody else's suffering, so I don't undermine anybody else's suffering. And I will never tell somebody, well, this is the way you just got to do it and just work your way through it. It's all what we're saying today is based on Talmudic and Torah perspectives. We're, interestingly enough, the people that we will quote today themselves have suffered tremendously. Just to give you a few examples, 
We are going to be quoting today Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva lived at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. He saw millions of Jews literally die in his lifetime. He lived during the Bar Kokhba revolt where another hundred thousand, few hundred thousand Jews were killed. He had it in his own family. He was ostracized by his in-laws. He was a person who lost 24,000 students in a matter of four weeks. So if you make the total, if you do the math, it's about 800 funerals a day he had to attend. So he was not a person who was a stranger. And not only that, at the end of his life, he suffered, he was imprisoned, and then he was tortured by the Romans when he was killed. So when we quote Rabbi Akiva, he is not saying a theoretical. He is a person who lived through suffering, real, real, tangible suffering. Another person we're going to quote today is Nachum Ishgamzu. Nachum Ishgamzu as well was a person who was, uh, was uh, a, a quadruple amputee, had no legs and no arms. He was blind. Also suffered, and he also we're going to quote today. The Balshemtov, who was orphaned from his, both of his parents at the age of four, traveled from place to place, didn't, always, didn't have children for a long time. The Balshemtov himself was a person who suffered. And we're going to quote the Balshemtov. The Alter Rebbe, sorry. The Alter Rebbe we're going to talk about today. The Alter Rebbe lost a young daughter while she was a young mother of a young child, also during his lifetime. So there's anybody that we're going to quote today, it's not that they are living a high life and never experience any suffering. They experience suffering and notwithstanding what the suffering that they experience, they are telling us these roles and ideas and that's in whose name I say it, not in my own. Number two, to whom should we apply these teachings of this lesson? And of course the answer is only to ourselves. We are not looking to be, God forbid, callous or apathetic. And never should we say that when somebody else is suffering, should we say, oh, that person's suffering because they did this and they did that and they deserve it. We always need to feel the pain of another person and never underestimate it in any way. And never underestimate it in any way whatsoever. And therefore, as we're still going to, I will discuss this also as well, towards the end of the lesson, we have to remain emotionally positive despite our own hardships, and we will, God willing, talk about it towards the end of the lesson as well, of how we can help others and ourselves in this attitude. And number three is, when should we apply these ideas? These are, there's no way that they are, they are something that we always have to implement them. These are perspectives that we need to take into consideration, and maybe you'll say, well, that's impossible. So here's through the whole thing, and I'm sure we can all find some level that we can appreciate these lessons at. So putting these three important points behind us, let's now move on to what we're started talking about today. We said that the question that we're talking about is that how do I maintain happiness with, and avoid negative emotions when we're suffering from various forms of hardship, when I have worries of what the future may bring, I don't know what's going to happen, there's suffering, there's trials and tribulations all around me, how do I maintain happiness? And the question is, is this a theological question or an emotional question? Is it a philosophical question or an emotional question? Well, it's both. While one may say it's an emotional question, but if you explain the rationale behind it, then many times the emotion is at ease. 
Like the famous story they say where the doctor was pricking this patient and finally the patient goes, ow! So the doctor says, and the doctor starts smiling. He's all happy. He says, why are you so happy? He says, because you had a stroke and this is the first time that you finally feel pain. So though it was painful, but once the person understood why they're having that pain, then it became a positive thing. So while the emotional is what drives us to ask the question many times when we have the theological we can then explain it and understand it and appreciate it so when we talk about the theological why bad things happen why people go through suffering I'm sure that many of you have gone to other classes I've heard this already we spoke about it in many other JLI classes but we're going to take a whole new angle of looking at pain and suffering, but even more so, we're not looking at pain and suffering, we're looking at how we can have a positive emotion, and even to the extent may even be happy, even during times of suffering and pain. And let's see how the Alter Rebbe begins to expand this matter. And the Alter Rebbe takes it as follows. Text number two. The Alter, page 143. The Alter Rebbe says the following. The following is advice on cleansing one's heart of all sadness and every trace of worry. Now listen to what he says. Worry about what? Mundane matters. Even about one's family, health, and livelihood. There's a well-known adage of our sages. Just as we bless God for the good, so too should we bless Him for our misfortune. The Talmud explains that we should accept misfortune with joy in the same way that we rejoice over visible, visible and over, overt goodness. Now what's going on over here? Sometimes, as you mentioned before, Robert, what is the thing that upsets us most, the cause of anxiety, frustration, negative emotion, is because I expect to have this model car and I wasn't able to afford it. I expect to live in this beautiful house, my neighbors have this, and I'm not able to have it. These things, of course, are simple. Just lower your expectation and you'll be happier. Don't make your expectation a need. Make the difference, decide what is the difference between something that I need and something that I want. Or something that I need or something what I expect, as we discussed in lesson number two. These solutions are very simple. You just lower your expectation, focus on what you truly need, and you get rid of that anxiety. But over here, the Altadeb is not saying that. If you look in the first paragraph in text two, he talks about even mundane matters about one's family, health, and livelihood. Meaning, necessities. That you are concerned about your children. You're concerned about the food you have on your table. Look at the words that he uses is bana, which means health issues, uh, which is children, health issues, or loss of a loved one, chaya, which means livelihood, mezayna, which means uh, to be able to have a job. Real things that you need to be able to live. And the Alter Rebbe at the same time tells us that we need to, to bless God for the painful experience just as we do for a pleasurable one. But the Talmud clarifies. Do you know that there are different... We don't say the same blessing. We don't say, when a time comes for suffering. These are special blessings for happy occasions in our life. And for sad occasions, what is the blessing? Blessed are you, God, the true judge. We just accept what God did. So he doesn't say it's the same, he says just as. That means there has to be a certain type of understanding. It means that we need to accept both the pleasurable and the painful experience as an equal gladness and equanimity that is coming from God. But what does that mean? 
How is that possible? How can some person, how can the human being accept happiness, a happy occasion, the birth of a child, and God forbid the loss of a loved one, the same way, with the same resolve? How is that even possible? And I'm sure you're all familiar with a very famous question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Anybody ever heard that question? Yeah. But I think the question is actually wrong. Because the question, as we look at it, is not why do bad things happen to good people, is do bad things happen to good people? Do bad things happen to good people? Or let's even have put it a step further. I'll even drop the good people. Do bad things happen to people? Why only good people? What does it make a difference? Since when do we find that if you do something wrong, all of a sudden lightning hits you and you go, God is a benevolent God. God doesn't say, okay, you messed me up, I'll mess you up. God is not looking to take revenge. So why only good people? Do bad things happen to people? Well, that's a very important question. But what is this telling us? One of the things that we find, and why this question is, do bad things happen to people? Why is it a good question? It's because in last week's Haftorah, we said one very concise line. A line that God expresses his absolute love to the Jewish people. You know, they say about a person, this guy walked into a flower store and he sees on the side, it says, say it with flowers. So he asks for one rose. So he says, only one rose? He says, yeah, I'm a man of a few words. <laughs> <laughs> but God says it very clearly, in a few words. God says, text number 3a in page 144, God's message to the Jewish people delivered by my Lachim, I love you, says God. That's it. God loves us. Even that, God tells us that his love for us is not something which is temporary, not contingent on our behavior or spiritual standing, but is everlasting. Text number 3b. God appeared to remind me of the love he showed our ancestors in Egypt long ago, and he instructed me to deliver the following message. My love for you is eternal. I therefore extend to you my loving kindness. So God loves us. You know how much God loves us? Look what the Baal Shem Tov says. Text number 3c. God's love for each of us individually is comparable to the love an elderly parent has for their only child, who was born to them in their later years, and even greater than that. Look at what the Baal Shem Tov says. Imagine your love to a child. Not only your love to a child, but to your only child. Not only to your only child, but a child who you had later in years, and even greater than that. Why is it even greater than that? Because look at the difference. As much as you love your children, guess what? News to tell you, you're only finite. There's only a limited amount of love you can show them. God, on the other hand, is infinite. And even as much as you love your child, at the end of the day, you're not in control what your child does. How many times do we think that we are children are doing exactly what we have in mind and the way they're programmed and everything else and then surprise? They don't always do what we like. Or not only they don't only do what we like, their health is not in your control. Many other things are not in your control. So it could be something very disturbing happening to your child that hurts you and pains you and you have zero control over it. God, on the other hand, is the omnipotent. He has the absolute control. There's nothing that stops him in his way. So over here you have 
God's love that he has for the Jewish children. God's love for the Jewish children is infinite for the Jewish people. God's love for every single one of us is so the example of an older parent or a parent, a child, is not even a comparable to the love that God has for us. So if God loves us so much, would he allow bad things to happen to us? If God loves us, imagine any parent, would they allow anything bad to happen to their children? Absolutely not. Not even remotely. Because of the love for their children. How much more so God that he loves us in an infinite way and he is absolutely in control? Would God allow anything bad to happen to us? So let's go back to that question. It's not why do bad things happen to good people. Do bad things happen to people? God loves us unconditionally, not because of what we've done like we found in the verse. It doesn't depend on the way we behave. It doesn't depend on how we react. It's like he has an infinite amount of love. He is the one that is absolutely in control. So regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, so any hardship or pain, regardless of what they are, technically, it's being allowed by God. That means that same God who has an infinite love for you, that same God who loves you in the greatest way will certainly never hurt you. So it's not a bad thing that's happening to you. Which leads us to the following conclusion. That there can only be two types of experiences. We can call it revealed good and hidden good. A good that feels good and a good that maybe doesn't feel so good. Imagine, as we're going to give this example a little bit later as well, you make your child do her homework, study for a test, but she'd rather be outside. What happens? Is it a revealed good? But you're doing it for the best of your child. So what we see over here is, this indeed brings us to the conclusion reached by the Alter Rebbe in text number four. The Talmud explains that we should accept misfortune with joy in the same way that we rejoice over visible and overt goodness. For the misfortune is likewise for the good, although its goodness is not apparent and visible to mortal eyes. What the Alter Rebbe is telling us is that if I believe that God loves me, and if I believe that God is infinite love, that means whether it's good, or it's not good that I see, but it is good because God will never do anything bad to me because He loves me. The same way my parents will never do anything bad to their child. Because of the love that's there. Which brings us back to our question. How can suffering and hardship be good? Because it makes us grow. It makes it, so is it good? It or is it, so is, in some, it depends, I think, on the level of bad. But I think in general, if something bad happens to you, it makes you grow in some way. So it makes you grow. So is the actual pain and suffering a good thing or not a good thing? So in the long term, it's a good thing. So Okay, so and now we're going to look... It's not. So what we're going to see... Okay, very good. So what we're going to see now, as mentioned, there are several different ways that we can understand this. And we're going to give different perspectives and the approach until we get to the Tanya's approach. And once we get to the Tanya's approach, we'll see how that's, so to speak, the pinnacle of all levels. So in the text we just read from the Baal Tereb, he mentioned something and he said, likewise... For the good, he uses the terminology here. Gam zu For goodness 
And likewise for the good, although its goodness not apparent and visible to mortal eyes. And there's a popular Jewish phrase that we find in the Talmud, where, and the famous Talmudic story that talks about that everything that happens is for the good. And we're going to start today with the story of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva says as follows, text number 5. A teaching attributed to Rabbi Akiva. We should make a habit of constantly declaring whatever God does is for the best. This is illustrated by an incident in which Rabbi Akiva was traveling when he arrived in a certain city. He sought lodging for the night, but no one there was willing to host him. Whatever, that will go, whatever God does is for the best, said Rabbi Akiva. And he went to sleep for the night in the field. He had a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. A sudden gust of wind extinguished his candle. Then a wild cat ate his rooster. Then the lion devoured his donkey. Whatever God does is for the good, Rabbi Akiva told himself. During that night, an army attacked the city, taking all residents captive. Rabbi Akiva later recounted this experience and told the students, Did I not tell you whatever God does is for the good? So what happened here? It turns out Rabbi Akiva was the only one that was a survivor. Should he have been in the city, he would have been killed. Should his candle have been lit, they would have found him. Should his rooster made noise, they would have caught him. Why did he have a rooster that was like his alarm clock, his candle was for him to study Torah, and his donkey for him to, to travel on. And meanwhile, everything was destroyed. He was going through pain and suffering, and it created a bunch of different anxieties because of it. But what happened? Everything that God did was for the good. What was he saying here? What was happening? In life, we sometimes see how pain and convenience, inconvenience, as you mentioned before, leads us to being better. Sometimes, a person knows about it in advance. For example, a person is willing to go into a surgery where they're going to cut and he's going to have to be able to recuperate for a few days, be in bed for six weeks, whatever it is, because he knows that eventually... This will help him and this will save his life. Is he going through suffering? Absolutely. But because he knows in advance that this suffering is going to help him, he has no problem dealing with the suffering. In other ways, sometimes it's in hindsight, like in the story of Rabbi Akiva. He said everything is for the good. Did he know what the good that was going to come from it? Absolutely not. Was he suffering at the time? Yes. But he said, look, there's a good result. In hindsight, I'll look back, or like you mentioned before, you became stronger because of it, and therefore, in hindsight, this worked out. Take many stories in the Torah like that. For example, Joseph was sold by his brothers. We're going to read it in two weeks, right? Seems like a terrible thing, but eventually what happened, he was able to bring down and save his parents and family from the, from the hunger. The Jewish people go down into Egypt for 210 years of slavery, but eventually they come out with great wealth. Same ideas. All the different situations that we find, different stories and episodes that I'm sure you can think of on your own, that in hindsight you realize, you know what, that was really for a good reason. You lost a job here, you thought it was a terrible thing, but because of that you found a better job someplace else. And whatever it may be. So a hardship that was brought can be seen in hindsight how it worked out. They say a famous story about this two people that were, um, this guy that used to go hunting with the king. And one time while he was going hunting with the king, he was shooting and the, the whatever, the uh, gun misfired and blew off the king's fire. And uh, blew, blew off the king's finger. And the guy that's traveling along with the king and says, well, whatever, it's all for the good. 
And the king says, what? I lose my finger at all for good? Throws him into prison, and that's it. Throws away the king. The king, meanwhile, goes hunting again, this time all alone. And however, this time he was caught by some uh, cannibals. They say, oh wow, we got some good meat. And as they're about to cook up their pot and take care of the king, they see that he's missing a finger, says, no, you're a blemished guy, we can't eat you, and they send him. Many years later, he comes back home, he goes to the prison, calls his friend out, this was after being in prison for 10 years, he says, I'm sorry that you were here in prison, you actually saved my life, you were right, all for the good, my life was saved, and look at that, and I want to let you out of prison. And the guy looks at the king and says, no, it was all for the good. So the king looks at him and says, what do you mean all for good? Sit in prison for 10 years for no reason? Why was all for the good? He says, because if not, I would be hunting with you. They would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, it's uh, due to our limited circumstances, we don't see the benefit of something until we actually arrive to the situation. They say in the Holocaust, there was a story about this fellow who was running away in the woods and they... German stopped and was running with his sister and they grabbed his sister and he grabbed back his sister and he said, how can you do that to my sister? I'm just cutting the story quick, whatever. But the bottom line is, the, ga- the Gestapo tells him, if there's hair on your palm, then I'll let you take your sister. So he opens up his hand and he sees there was hair growing on his palm and they let him go. So they asked him, how did you have hair? And he let him go and he survived. He said many years later, what happened? He said before the war, he was working in a machine shop and he crushed his hand and they had to use a graft. And the graft that they took was from a part of his body that grows here. But the doctor said, no, here, impossible to grow there. But his palm is not a medical, is not a doctor in a group here anyway. And he he's always was embarrassed. He always kept his hand closed about the here that he had there. And over here it saved his life. So we see again the concept that we don't see the benefit until we arrive there. So let's... <clears throat> so earlier we compared God to a loving parent. And at times, take the same idea. Let's take this same idea of Rabbi Akiva. At times, a loving parent deliberately chooses to do things which seemingly cause discomfort. And as you mentioned, and you grow because of the pain, and when you all of a sudden, you find out that this was actually for your benefit. Whether it is um, finding out that it was for your benefit in this world or in the next world. But for example, taking shots. Which kid likes having shots? But it's immunizations that helps the child. So just like a parent can deliberately cause pain to their child only to be able to show their love for their child, so too at times we can find that God causes us pain not because he's doing something bad to us, but in essence there's something good that's going to come from it. And it's only due to our limited experience and intelligence that we don't understand how this is a positive thing. So when we talk about parents doing something which is uncomfortable for their child, causing pain for their child, it's not despite the love, but it's actually because of the love that they have for their child while they're doing it. In the same vein, we can talk about God versus suffering, pain and suffering. Being that we can trust that God loves us, and being that God loves us, He certainly wants us to have a benefit at the end, and therefore, though now it looks like pain and suffering, the end result will be that there is a good time. Now, not always we would see it. Sometimes we see it in advance. Sometimes we see it in hindsight. And sometimes we have to wait for the next world to be able to see it. Now, let's go back to Rabbi Zusha's answer. 
Is this what Rav Zusha was answering to the fellow? Sounds like it. Why? Did Rav Zusha see suffering? He didn't even see suffering. So this can't be Rav Zusha's answer. Rav Zusha could have told the person simply, oh, the Mishnah means that eventually you'll see what the good is, so therefore you have to thank God. But that's not what he said. Rav Zusha said, I don't see suffering. So this is not what Rav Zusha was talking about. So let's go a step further. Let's start with another story, continue with the story, that's brought in the Talmud, about a sage called Nachum Ishgamza. And I'm sure many of you heard the aphorism of the quote or the anecdote, which is called Gam Zu Latova. This is also for the good. Nachum Ishgamza was called that. He was known because he would always say Gamzu Latova. He actually was the teacher of Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva used to say everything that God does is for the good. Nachum Ishgamzu was Rabbi Akiva's teacher. And here's the story how it happened. People refer to Nachum Ishgamzu, text number 6, page 148. The Gamzu guy. Why was he called the Gamzu guy? Because whatever happened to him, he would always respond, Gamzu Latova, this is also for the good. Once the Jews needed to send the gift to the Caesar, they told each other, who should go to Rome bearing the gift on hand? On our behalf. Let us send Nachum Ishgamzu because he regularly experiences miracles. They sent them off with a chest filled with precious stones and jewels. On his way, he stopped at an inn for the night. During the night, the innkeepers removed all the precious stones and jewels and refilled the chest with soil. The next morning, Nachum realized what had happened. But what did he declare? This is also for the good. When he arrived at the Caesar's palace and presented him a gift on behalf of the Jewish nation, they opened the chest and they saw that it was filled with soil. The Jews are mocking me, roared Caesar. He was about to execute Nachum and the Jews who accompanied him. But Nachum simply declared, This is also for the good. Elijah the prophet suddenly appeared before the Caesar, disguised as one of his ministers. He told the Caesar, Perhaps the soil was the kind of their ancestor Abraham used in battle. He threw earth at the enemy armies, and it turned into swords. That fell upon his opponents. He threw stubble, and it turned into arrows. The Caesar was eager to try it out. There was a province that the Romans were unable to conquer. They tested the soil by throwing it at the enemies, and thereby conquered the province. In gratitude, the Caesar instructed Nachum's chest to be filled with precious stones and the jewels from the royal treasury. They sent them back home with great honor. So, just a little side text to the story. At the end was that the people, he stopped by the inn on his way home, and they saw that their earth turned into arrows. They brought their earth to the Roman Caesar, and they got killed for bringing, falsifying their earth. But what do we see from the story of Nachum Ishkamsu? He was willing to take the earth, and in fact, the commentaries say that the fact that the earth turned into arrows was a better benefit for them, because if he would just would have brought them jewels, what does the king need their jewels for? He has plenty of jewels. But over here, he brought them something now that they didn't have. But let's look at the story of Nachum Ishkamzu in contrast it to the story of Rabbi Akiva. Do both stories sound the same? Both of them seem like the same. They both had frightful events, and they both kept a positive tone and had unanticipated positive endings. Do you see any difference between the two stories? Can you identify a distinction between Rabbi Akiva's story and Nachum Ishkamsu's story? Between the story of the city that was attacked and the story of bringing the jewels? Anyone? 
the similarity is that they're both positive. Both positive outcomes. Yeah. Do you see a difference in the actual story itself and the two peoples? What's the difference? Let's, I'll put it in a different way. What's the difference if I say everything that God does is for the good or I say this is for the good? Rabbi Akiva said, everything that God does, my rooster was destroyed, my rooster was killed, my candle went out, everything that God does is for the good. Nachum Mishkamzu said, this too is for the good. Let's see the difference. Text number seven. There's a distinction between the stories of Rabbi Akiva and Nachum Mishkamzu. Rabbi Akiva suffered loss and pain. He lost his donkey and his rooster. He sat in the dark and he spent the night in the field. True, this was for the sake of a positive outcome. But the experience itself was a negative, was painful. By contrast, Nochom Ishkamzu never suffered any harm. To the contrary. If he had presented precious stones and jewels, it is uncertain whether the Caesar would have valued the gift. After all, there was no shortage of precious stones in the royal treasury. The soil that he brought, on the other hand, was indeed greatly appreciated. Rabbi Akiva endured hardship, but the hardship spared him from his greater hardship. Nochom Ishkamzu's experience was in itself a positive one. Yes. Um, you know, the, the jewels were stolen and replaced by earth. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, what is, what is the meaning there that that, this, that that, why should that earth be like the earth of Abraham and that? It wasn't, it was an angel that appeared, it was a miracle that happened, and said that that earth could be, why would the Jews bring you earth? Because maybe that earth comes from Abraham. It was an earth. Elijah the prophet disguised himself as a soldier and gave that implanted that idea into the Caesar. And he tried it and it was right. The idea. And then it was a, mir- a miracle that it actually and worked. And then it came to be. Correct. So it was a miracle. So the litmus test to determine whether the particular event was Rabbi Akiva type of event or Nachomishkanfu event was had I known how the story would have ended. What if I experienced pain or distress at all? That means, in Rabbi Akiva's case, what if he wouldn't have been saved? Did he experience pain? Absolutely. At the time when his donkey was destroyed, Rabbi Akiva was feeling pain. Yes, there was a positive outcome at the end. He said, whatever God does is for the good. But right now, I'm suffering. Nachum Ishgamzu was different. Nachum Ishgamzu came along and said, I never experienced pain. This too is also good. The very fact that I'm bringing soil is even better than I had diamonds. I'm not at all concerned. I'm not suffering right now when I'm bringing the soil. Well, until the prophet appeared... That's true, but Nachum Ishgamzu lived his life even before the prophet appeared. He never had the suffering. So you don't think he was a paid thing that what Caesar would do to him? No, because he said this too is for the good. That means this exact act was good as well. That means, let's take it in a step further. Sometimes our appearances look like they're a negative experience. And we can't appreciate what it is until we seemingly have the after effect. But right then and there, were we suffering? Not necessarily, sometimes yes, sometimes not. Let's take, for example, you give a child a gold coin, and he opens it up at the time, and he sees it's not chocolate. 
At the time, the child is too mature to understand that nothing bad, nothing bad has happened. And just that he actually got something better than he actually wished for. But is the child suffering? Absolutely not. He may be immature to realize that it's not bad. He's been realizing that he got something thousand times worth better. There's a story about a fellow, a chassid, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Elishevitz. He was in a city called Stalingrad. And uh, he was from the few defenders of the city of Stalingrad. And when the bomb started falling, he was looking for shelter. And he ran into the shelter, but this communist thug came inside and kicked him out and said, you Jew, get out of the shelter. As he's running away from the shelter, because he got kicked out, a bomb comes and hits the, the shelter where they were all in, and everybody there was killed. What happened there? Did he experience pain and suffering? He saw that in essence he got kicked out, but that being kicked out actually saved his life. So yes, he saw it a few moments later, but that in itself, had the soldier not taken his place, he would have been blown up. Was he upset? He may have been upset, but just because he didn't realize that experience may have been upset. But that's because he didn't fully understand and comprehend the entire experience. So Rabbi Nachum Ishgamzu said, we need to understand the entire experience before we can determine if it's bad or good. And therefore, because I don't have the maturity to understand the experience, I know this is good. Rabbi Akiva, on the other side, no, there's suffering. But within the suffering, I know that in the hindsight, or added bonus, I know that there's going to be a good end. That's the difference between the two of them. Now let's watch a little video about this concept about the experience. Once upon a parable, there was a boy named David who pondered the production of bread. Off he went to the bakery, where he learned that bread came from grain, which was supplied by a farmer. Off he went to the farm, where he found a field covered with wild greenery. He stood there admiring the pleasant sight. Wild grasses nodded in the breeze. Just then, a burly farmer arrived with what looked like a contraption of mass destruction. To David's horror, the farmer began attacking the field. He dug it up, brutally overturning grass and flowers, leaving rows of dirty, lifeless trenches in their place. Stop! cried David. What are you doing? You're wrecking your beautiful field! The farmer flashed a giant grin. Wait and see, he responded mysteriously. Come back tomorrow at noon. The next day, David found the farmer strolling among fresh furrows, casting handfuls of seed here and there. What's that? he asked in wonder. Grain, came a rough reply. Oh my, exclaimed David. Grain costs a pretty penny. Please don't throw it onto the ground. The farmer roared with laughter. You'll have to wait a couple of months to see what it's all about. David did just that. He returned to find tremendous stalks of golden wheat. Wonderful, he exclaimed. It's even better than before. Told you, came the farmer's familiar voice. Now, watch this. The harvest began. The farmer felled the wheat with gusto. Not again! yelled David in confusion. Didn't you spend months preparing this stuff? Now you're back to square one, with destroyed vegetation and an empty field. You're right, 
grinned the farmer. Come along to the mill. You'll get the picture. When they arrived at the mill, things got a lot worse. Why are you grinding everything into dust? That's totally pointless and heartless. Hold your horses, growled the farmer. I just need some water, and you'll understand. The farmer needed the flour and water, and lined up trays of dough in the shape of loaves, bread rolls, and braided challah. That's amazing, gushed David. I finally get it. It was all for the sake of these marvelous creations. But then the farmer fired up a roaring oven and inserted the trays above the flames. And David began to yell, Help! You'll burn it! I can't bear to watch this any longer. Hang around a little longer, pleaded the farmer. And then, as the room filled with a warm, sweet, irresistibly mouth-watering aroma, David experienced a bright dawn of understanding. With the arrival of rows of soft, delicious, and highly nutritious, freshly baked bread. <laughs> I'm sure many of you had in your own life different experiences where you saw things seem negative and then only to find out later, in hindsight, like Rabbi Akiva, right? And see that all of a sudden these things work out. So let's, we now have two paradigms, how we can view hardship. <clears throat> and let's just look clearly, if you look in um, text of figure 4.18, when we talk about how we look at it. In paradigm A, a negativity exists, although it's a means to an end, but at the end of the day, right now, there's a negative emotion, which you want to call it, if you say, i got to go down like a spring, you got to bunch it so it should be able to get larger, but at the end of the day, there is a negativity. In paradigm B, there's no negativity whatsoever. Consequently, in paradigm A, when we experience something negative, I'm not losing my mind, I don't have to get examined. There is something negative happening. It's a true perception. Although I keep in mind and I know that there's going to be a positive outcome that's going to come from it, but right now I am perceiving something negative. In contrast to paradigm B, there is no negative experience whatsoever. This in itself is good. In paradigm A, we tolerate difficult situations knowing that eventually it will lead to something better. In paradigm B, not only do I tolerate, but I appreciate the situation because that in itself is good. So we just want to look over here. We have paradigm A leads to greater understanding. In paradigm B, it's good, but it's in disguise. Paradigm A, negativity exists, but is a vehicle for me to see the positive. Paradigm B, there's no negative whatsoever. It's only positive. Our perception in paradigm A is mostly correct, but in paradigm B, our perception is incorrect if we have negativity. Our reaction to paradigm A is tolerance. I tolerate the pain and suffering because I know this will bring me to a better place. However, in paradigm B, I appreciate it because this in itself is good. So paradigm A is Rabbi Akiva 
Paradigm B will be Nachamish Gamatim. Correct. Now, of course, sometimes, when do we get to see the good? Not always, even according to Nachamish Gamatim. I don't always get to see the good in this world. Maybe it's in the world to come. However, we always see the matters through in the, as good when I look at through the lens of Paradigm B. Now, let's go back to our Rabzusha story. Was Rabzusha Nachamish Gamatim paradigm? Or was he, does that answer... Why Rabzusha didn't see any suffering? Does that answer the question? Not at all. It's still not Rabzusha. Rabzusha then could have answered, the Mishnah is telling us, you have to bless the good and the bad, because the good is also good, the bad is also good, Gamzul Tova. Rabzusha dismissed the concept of suffering. Why are you coming to me? I don't even know what suffering is. Nachumish Gamzul didn't say, I don't know what suffering is. Nachamish Gamzu said, this suffering is also a positive thing. But he acknowledged suffering. So where do we go from here? So we're far from done. In fact, we're just getting started now on the Tanya's unique approach, which we would call now Paradigm C. And here's a little bit of a dizzying, so put your thinking caps on, and that's why I said it's going to be tough to understand the beginning, but once we get through it, we'll, you'll see it all comes clear. Everything exists in concept. That means when you have an idea of something, you have an idea about it, you then think you have a thought process, eventually you articulate it, and then you express it, and then other people know about it. When you have an idea, how many people know about it? Nobody. It's what you would call hidden within yourself. The same idea is when we talk about God, when God created the world, or God created the consciousness that we're in, whatever it may be. Kabbalah explains to us that the first two levels of God's involvement, so to speak, to have a relationship with the creations, is called Chachma and Bina. Wisdom and knowledge, the ideas, the planning of the creation. The planning of the creation eventually are the father and mother of the emotions of the creation. But which one do we have a relationship to? The speech eventually is what brought it about. Being, as God said, God created the heaven and the earth, and there was heaven and earth. But as people, which one do we have a relationship to? We know there's the hidden world, which is called the Chachma and Bina, and then there's the revealed world, which is the emotion and the speech. We don't know what's going on in the hidden worlds. We don't know, we only know, we think we know what's even in the revealed world. But even that, we have a little slight understanding. So what does it tell us? When we talk about, let's put this in words that we can understand as people. When I have an idea about another person, I can have 35 types of ideas about another individual. But it means nothing to that person if I don't express it. If I don't say it, if I don't bring the words, the action, I don't reveal what my emotions are, it means nothing. It's like the couple that came to the therapist and the woman tells the therapist, my husband never told me that he loves me. So the therapist turns to the husband and says, is that true? So the husband says, I told her 25 years ago I love her and nothing changes, I'll let her know. (laughs) But we don't know how we feel if we don't express it. That means the only reason why we need to express something is to be able to create, cultivate a relationship. 
I can have wonderful ideas, but all those wonderful ideas will not bring a relationship. The only way I can have a relationship is once I reveal the idea. The same idea is also the creator of God. God's emotions and speech is how he develops, develops a relationship with us creations. What's in his mind is called, so to speak, the hidden world. What does this all have to do with suffering? So let's see what the Tanya says. Text number 8. For this is also for the good, except that it is not apparent and visible to mortal eyes, because it stems from the hidden world that is higher than the revealed world. So what is this telling us? Whenever there are two entities that are vastly different, especially in different levels in intelligence, you have wisdom and you have an experience. Even take the knowledge that a person has to the experience of even if they bring it into the emotions, it's completely two entities. The ideas that any person may have in his mind and the practicality of it is very different. So when we talk about somebody wants to express love and kindness, there's the kindness that can be in the higher world, and then there's the kindness that can be in the terms of the lower world. What does that mean? Let's take for example. A parent who cares and loves their child. They can do so by two ways. Giving the child a lollipop or putting $3,000 in their college account. Which would you say shows a greater love? College College account. Tell a three-year-old I put $3,000 in a college account. Which will they think expresses a greater love? The The lollipop. So the revealed love the revealed love, so to speak, the revealed is given on the, given on the recipient's terms, is far less of a quality and far less of something substantial than what it is given on the giver's reality. What now, is, what does the translation of Chokman mean? Knowledge, wisdom, and comprehension, or conception and comprehension. Now, when you take these two opinion, these two uh, these two options, which one's good? Which one's greater? As we mentioned, putting the three thousand dollars into the college tuition. But which one does the child appreciate? The lollipop. Why? Due to the child's limited understanding of what the parent is doing for them, the child doesn't understand it. Not only that, sometimes the child thinks that we are being sadistic. To get them. We're taking them to the doctor to get a needle. We're forcing them to go to school. We're not letting them watch the sports. We're not letting them be on the device all day. And what are they complaining about? Look at my parents. Look how terrible they are. And it's understandable that all parents want to express their love to their children in both ways. You want to express the love on their level. You also want to express the love in something in a subconscious level that they don't understand. That means any parent who thinks, I'm only going to give my children lollipops, and that's the love that I'll show to my child, is probably hurting their child. Any child, any parent that says, I'm only going to give them hidden love, that kid's going to need to be in therapy for a while. Why? Because in order for the love, for the relationship to happen, there has to be a revealed love, and there has to be a hidden love. There has to be according to the recipient, there has to be according to the giver. 
The concept is also true when we come to our relationship with God, but even much more so because God is infinitely greater than the experiences that we can give our children. Moreover, children eventually grow up and begin to appreciate what their parents did for them, even if though at the time they didn't. We will never be God. Newsflash. So we will never always understand the love that God does for us. We just explained before that God has infinite love for every single one of us, and because of that, He also controls the circumstances of what there's going to be. So there's only two types of experiences. Experiences that are good and feel good, and experiences that are good and don't feel good. But now we can understand why both of them are an experience. What does that mean? The pleasant experience originates from God's revealed world, the way we feel things. The unpleasant experience comes from the hidden world, from the way God gives it to us. That means they feel some feel great, and that's because it's our perception, our experience of what good is. On the other hand, there's an appreciation of goodness which we don't necessarily experience, and this is an experience that God is, so to speak, investing in our college fund, and we don't know about that. Why? Because this is a good that God's giving on His terms, not on our terms. Which thus leads us to a whole new paradigm of understanding of how to deal with suffering and hardship. In paradigms A and B, both of them, Nachum Yishkamzu and, and uh, Rabbi Akiva, hardships are also a good thing. Either because it brings to a positive experience, like in the case of Rabbi Akiva, or because it's really good and the soil turns into bows and arrows. In paradigm C, we're saying something different. Infinite goodness on the terms of an infinite God. Which means that not only do I realize and acknowledge that what God gave me is good, but I'm actually happy about it because I've now gotten $3,000 in my college fund. I, I don't see it. I, right now, I'd rather have a lollipop. I'm not feeling it. But God is really being good to me because God can only be good to me because He loves me. I'm not mature enough. I don't appreciate it. If I would appreciate it, I would be happy. So I work on being happy to appreciate it. So let's look at this paradigm again. Paradigm C tells me greater good is in disguise. Negativity doesn't exist. Our perception is incorrect. And what's our reaction? Absolute rejoicing. Because the negativity, the suffering and pain that's there is an experience that God is giving beyond my maturity. It's a good experience. I, I don't feel it. That's the same reason why the three-year-old doesn't realize that $3,000 is a good thing. Or the same reason why I'd rather have a chocolate, co- a chocolate gold instead of a, a gold coin. Because of our lack of maturity. But just because I'm immature doesn't mean that I shouldn't appreciate it doesn't give me a, t- a reason to rejoice. Even though I can't use that money, let's say I can't use it until I'm 18 years old, but I still have a reason to rejoice. But now let's go back to Reb Zusha. Does this explain Reb Zusha? Does this explain his answer? Which is this paradigm C person? No person. Just an idea that the tiny brings. Yeah. Why does it explain Reb Zusha? I'll put you on the spot. 
mean, no. It okay. Because he said there's no hardship. Very good. No. So it still doesn't explain the position. Yes. Rav Zusha was asked. He was asked, "How can I thank God for the? How can I thank God for the good and the bad? The same, just as the same." And when he came, and he was a person that suffered tremendously, and when he answered, he answered. He said, "What's suffering?" In his eyes. So this is answered. Rav Zusha. The answer is, it does not, because in Rav Zusha's eyes, there's no such thing as suffering. Here, there's still a concept of suffering. I may be incorrect of my perception, but at the end of the day, it's greater good in disguise. I yes. know Rabbi Zusha in a different way. Remember that I told you about the teenage girls yes. complaining about everything because they, you know, they're watching TV and they're watching their friends, maybe the friends are wealthier, and they say, well, they got everything, I got nothing. And they complain about everything. Rabbi Zusha must have been comparing himself to people that were worse off than him, maybe his congregation. Okay, that's a good that's a good point. But the problem so is that's not. To that, but but that's not what rich. he answered. That's not what he answered. And not only that, he wasn't being asked about himself. He was asked to be able to explain a Mishnah. How can I thank God for the good and the bad at the same time? And over here, he says, "What's suffering?" What's That's true, but is he suffering or not? At the end of the day, no. we have people. Let's talk about not only Rabzusha, let's talk about ourselves. There is pain and suffering that happens. Oh, we are trying to affect this in ourselves and to be able to say in the macrocosm, but right now they're suffering. But if we were only to go by the five senses that humans possess, then of course, yeah, they're suffering, but humans are more than just the five Let's senses. find out. Okay. So there's more to the story as you're seeing. And until now, our question was. Am I suffering hardship, pain, or tragedy? And therefore the question was, what kind of benefit that can possibly bring me? Bring me? Rabbi Akiva said there's an eventual good. Nachamishkamzu said there's a good in itself, in the thing itself. The last one we just said in the hidden world, there's a revealed good, there's a greater good in disguise, and therefore there's something to rejoice. <coughs> but either of these ways, the difficulty is whether they bring a letter, ultimately, however, we're framing hardship in the context of what's good for me and what's my benefit. What do I gain from it? Meaning, I'm looking at this hurts, and because of this, what do I do? Just going back, I thought it was an interesting story I read. It was um, going back to Rabbi Akiva, where Rabbi Akiva said, everything that happens in this world is for the good. There was once this rabbi that they asked him why he lived such a long life. Why he lived such a long life? He lived to a very old age. He said, what merit did he do that he lived a long life? So he said, he never asked why. What does that mean? He says, anytime something happened in his life, he didn't ask why. He says, why? Because if you ask why, God says, ah, you want to find out why? Come upstairs, I'll show you. So therefore, he never asked why. So God left him here. So he doesn't, he doesn't need the new why. God does something. He accepts it. 
Just the, going back to the Gamzulot over Rabbi Akiva. But ultimately, however, our discussion was all about framing hardship in the context of what's our good, our benefit, and how does this help us. And because I am not being held from it, I don't have a reason to rejoice. It puts me down negatively, and it causes anxiety, and it causes me frustration. In paradigm D, we're going to shift completely, and again, taking us in a different direction altogether. And let's see in Tanya, text number 9. The joy a person experiences due to suffering is a consequence of one's desiring God's closeness. More than anything offered in life, in his words, as it is written, for your loving kindness is nearer than life. And the nearness of God is infinitely stronger and more sublime in the hidden world. Over here, the Alter Rebbe quotes a Psalm chapter 63, which begins the words, A Song of David. David composed the song while he was in the Judean desert. Do you know what he was doing in the Judean desert? He was being chased by his father-in-law, King Saul, that wanted to kill him. He was ostracized from the entire Jewish community, away from the Mishkan, away from all the Jews, hiding from civilization that he shouldn't be called, killed. And what does he say in his song? Oh God, you are my God, I seek you, I thirst for you, my body longs for you. I ate and thirsted without water. And I saw you in the sanctuary and I see your strength and glory. What is King David saying? In the words that the Alter Rebbe quotes, For your loving kindness is dearer to my life than life my lips shall praise you. David recognized that his suffering stemmed from the concept of the hidden world, not something he understood. David didn't say it's all fine. I'm good because I know what's going to happen in the end. I'll eventually be the king and I'll build the holy temple and everything will work out for me. That's not what David said. David didn't say, I see a deeper good. What did David say? This is a whole different type of good. David uses the terminology, look at the words, your loving kindness is dearer than life, my lips I shall praise. David is saying, the goodness, the relationship, the intimacy that I can have with God is better to me than anything else. That's the ultimate kindness that God can have. You see, the benefit, the, the benefit, the advantage of being a beneficiary of God's hidden world is not only the goodness, is not only the positive notion, is not only the positive matter, because none of this mattered to King David. What did King David want? What was his only desire? David wanted a relationship where he can be close to God. Think of it this way. Let's take back the lollipops. <coughs> What does the person say I benefit? I want the lollipop. The child says I'd rather have the lollipop than the $3,000. But you know what? That dad gives lollipops to every single kid in the shul. Is there any closeness because of a lollipop? That means if I give you a gift, a benefit, a positive emotion, based on your intellect, what have I done? Nothing. I've not created a relationship. Because that same benefit I can give to 30 other people. I can give lollipops to everybody. But I don't put $3,000 into everybody's account. This is where you see the difference from the parent of the child and anybody else. David wasn't considering the nature of the gift, although in the gifts that he would always accept. But what he loved was the love and the closeness that God had for him. It wasn't about what I'm getting. It's about who I am. Think of it this way. 
I believe Yitzchak Abarditchev put it in the song. And I believe Yitzchak Abarditchev was just a colleague of Rebzusha, so you can imagine. And in fact, Rebzusha, just an interesting anecdote on the side, Rebzusha Vanipaldi was one of the only people, there were two approbations on the Tanya. Rebzusha is one of the approbations that were given on the Tanya. And Rebbe Yitzchak Abarditchev was all a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, so you can see that they're all coming from the same mindset of where they're coming from. And text number 10, this is a song that Rebbe Yitzchak Abarditchev used to sing. In Yiddish it's beautiful, it goes, It goes, Master of the Universe. I'd like to sing you all about a song all about you. Master of the Universe, I'd like to play you a melody all about you. Where are you to be found, O God? Where are you not to be found, O God? Up there you are, down to the sun, to the east, you are to the west, it's you, to the north, you, to the south, you, 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 you. When things are good, that's you, and when they're not, that's also you. But since it's you, listen to the words, since it's you, it is good. You, you, you. Every hardship is simply God giving us a disembrace in disguise. Every hardship that is there is God saying, I love you, I have a relationship. Not a relationship that you get a benefit from, but a relationship which is singly tailored to you because God loves you so much. In the words of Rabbi Steinsaltz, in his explanation on the Tanya, he says as follows. Follow closely, it's a little challenging this uh, paragraph here. To say this too is for the best. Text number 11, page 159. To say this too is for the best is hardly the same thing as an art, a superficial optimism. It is a recognition of the reality of pain and evil and an attempt to get to the root of suffering, to get beyond the fact that everything bad has something good in it, and that salvation often emerges from tribulation. There is no longer any consideration of ultimate profit or hidden goodness in the reality of suffering. Besides, what kind of release or consolation resides in the thought that pain will pass? One who's in agony of the body or spirit can hardly be made to feel better by a philosophical religious ideas. Basically, if you come over to a person that's suffering and say, Don't worry, it's going to be good. Don't worry, everything will work out. Hello, but it hurts. I'm in pain now. Because in six months it's going to feel good doesn't help me. As many philosophies and theologies you're going to tell me. And therefore, what's the only way to bring positive? The Jew who sincerely faces suffering does not seek an accounting with God. He does not reproach divine justice or defend his own innocence. Nor does he seek ways of reaping some advantage. He relates entirety to the present, to that which is now, not to what was in the past or what is liable to be in the future. No solace is sought or vain imaging. If God wills it, the situation will improve. Otherwise, it's none of my business. The argument is that since suffering is something that comes from God, it is the, na- the nature of a gift, or at least something that is given. Because, to be sure, not everything that is given can at first sight be recognized as something positive. And it takes a lot of time, a great deal of tumultuous reputation, before one reaches a relatively peaceful state of equilibrium. We don't always see something that's given to us as a gift. And many times it takes a long time to really adjust ourselves to realize what it is that was given to us. And what the Tanya is telling us in Paradigm D is that what God is actually giving you is a gift, which is a relationship, is love. The very fact that you don't see it, that's what we need to work on. 
So what we see over here, so just to go through paradigm D in contrast to the other ones, paradigm D tells us no. What is the what am I getting? Is greater intimacy with God. Does negativity exist? Absolutely not. Our perception is irrelevant what I feel. As long as I have the relationship. It doesn't really make a difference what the child feels, if the child likes the lolly or not. But the child knows that what he's getting from his parent is absolutely love. And our reaction is dearer than life itself. Until this point, we were struggling with the question of whether our perception of hardship is accurate. And that's why we had, maybe it's a greater disguise, maybe it's incorrect, is it correct? And in the first paradigm, it was even correct. But now we've come to a point where it's irrelevant. And we're not looking for gifts. And want love itself. So whether or not hardship is real, we're after something entirely. What are we looking for? We're looking for something deeper. What is the greater good? We're not looking for gifts, but for love itself. We're now to a point where we can make the complete circle and come back to Reb attitude. What was Reb saying? What was Reb saying? Reb answered, he said, I never experienced suffering. You know why I never experienced suffering? Because I'm in love with God. And whatever God gives me is a gift. Is love. I don't know what suffering is. It wasn't a gift in disguise because his focus wasn't on the gift in the first place. I'm not in a relationship with God to get something from him. If we think that God is all about only what we can get and give to God, then of course, yeah, I got a problem. Let's move this in there, let's say in a relationship. If the relationship between the husband and wife is only what they can get from one another, that marriage is going to fall apart. But if the relationship is because they're there for each other, for the relationship, yes, at times I get... Not such good looks. Sometimes I get very nice looks. But they're all part of the relationship. It's not suffering. This is what the relationship is. Where Abzusha did not understand what suffering was, when he came to him says, I don't suffer. Because God will not give me something that I suffer. I have a relationship. I love God. God loves me. I'm not looking at the gifts. I'm looking at the relationship. It's a different outlook. A different view. I'm not even looking at that side. How does this happen? Where we, as we mentioned a few times, where this whole course is that we should move away from the negative emotions to the positive emotions by aligning ourselves with the divine soul. What is it? Why does by aligning ourselves with the divine soul does all of a sudden give us this new perspective? Because the natural soul, by definition, human beings look to see what do I get from this. When I approach a business deal, where's my commission? When I come to something, where do I get from it? Where do I go from here? How do I receive something from it? Every time we approach something in life, the natural soul says, I want to have gratification from it. Okay, if I know my gratification has to come because I have to get a shot and then I'll feel better and I won't get the flu, fine, I'll take the shot. I'm delaying gratification. But ultimately, the reason why I'm willing to do it is because I'm going to get gratification from it. That means the natural soul will convince itself in many ways what the gratification may be or when it will come, whether in the paradigm A and B, Rabbi Akiva or Nachum Yishganzo, there's a side benefit that will come from it. This is also good. Or even in paradigm C, this is a gift that which is beyond me. A hidden gift. It's all the natural soul. Because it's all about what I'm getting. 
Paradigm D says no. The divine soul says, I'm not interested in what I'm getting. I'm interested in a relationship. What is this relationship going to give me? Paradigms A through C are appreciated by the natural soul. Well, paradigm D is something only can be appreciated by the divine soul because the divine soul is selfless. It's not looking for what it can get. It's looking for what it is. It's looking how it can develop a relationship with God and have that love experience. So let's go back to our area of interest that we started off with benefits of the divine soul model. Our problem was an anxiety and worry over material matters. That's what we started off our class today saying that I get negative emotions because of needs that I may need. Not needs, not wants or expectations, but needs in material matters. The rationale was that within the focus of the nearness of God, one can be happy despite the hardships or even because of the hardships because this is all a giving gift from God. So now that we got through the thesis of the lesson, we come back to the big question. How do we apply this? So today we learned four different ways, four different perspectives on hardship and suffering. What obstacles may we have in applying them? Anybody? Not having faith. Okay. Anybody else? Being impatient. Huh? Being impatient. Being impatient. How about not being Rabzusha? <laughs> not being King David. At the end of the day, we are all, at least I am, a physical person. Our tendency is to follow our natural soul. So far be it for me to suggest that the perspective of paradigm is a quick switch. It doesn't just happen. Take out from your medicine chest, apply to paradigm D three times, and all of a sudden all pain and suffering disappear. It's a lifetime experience. It's a lifetime work in progress. It requires a whole different mindset and shift of how we look at life. And just because I'm wearing the garb, it doesn't make it any easier. We all have struggles. We all have challenges. And regardless of where it is, we all are also physical people. But at the same time, hardship and suffering are part of life. And the very fact that the Torah gives us the recipe, how to deal with it, means that it's something that can be done. Of course, with hard work and with lots of effort. So, so the four paradigms, each one, and I think the best way to do it, is if we start from, instead of jumping to paradigm D, if we can work on ourselves and start from paradigm A, like Rabbi Akiva, and realize that everything that happens has ultimately a good reason, even if I'm having a negative experience, then climb to paradigm B. Once I've gotten that, to even go to the level of Nachum Yishkamzu and realize that there is no negative experience, that in itself will be a good experience. And then all of them, then you can go to paradigm C and say this is from the hidden gift that God is giving us. And then eventually we can reach to paradigm D. Even if we do change our perspective, and this is an interesting thing as well. Even if I am at the level of paradigm D, we always have to remember that pain will always be painful. The hardship will always remain hard. It is only a question of how well, how we view it and what we do about it. Text number 12. When our sages speak in praise of those who rejoice in their suffering, who hear themselves vilified and do not respond, they do not mean that one does not feel the affliction. 
or at the same time that these experiences do not bother the person at all. Were that so, these experiences were not forms of suffering or shame at all, we would not be able to say those rejoice in their suffering. There's a reason why it's called suffering. Besides, the mind cannot bear being disgraced, God forbid, and only a fool or someone with a deficiency of mind would not feel a shame or suffering, God forbid. For such a person is similar to an animal in regard. Rather, as human beings, we experience suffering and shame. We do not consider them pleasant experience. Nonetheless, we rejoice. This is only due to godly faith and knowledge that there is tremendous goodness hidden within these experiences. We rejoice, but at the same time experience the realities of the suffering. What's the Rebbe Shab saying over here? He says, number one, in paradigms A through C, there's no question that we experience discomfort and pain. However, taking these paradigms, they help us alleviate the pain, they help us work through a positive emotion, and a positive attitude towards the difficulties and hardships that we have in life. And they help eventually to alleviate the distress, the anxiety, the pain, and the (coughs) suffering, which comes because of it. Paradigm D, which is the Reb ideal, where he didn't feel suffered at all, is apparently that only he, and like King David, fully adopted it, and that the only thing that mattered to him was a full intimacy with God. And nothing else mattered. So, he was enjoying the relationship with God. Nothing else in his life made a difference. While we as ordinary people, at least for myself, paradigm D is not so black and white. It's not an all or nothing. It doesn't mean that I have to be at the level of Rebuzusha, but at least we can aspire to say when something tragic happens in our life, or when we, and that doesn't have to be something tragic, or when we're going through these pain and suffering, whatever it may be in, to hold a bigger perspective and not be so disturbed by the life's difficulties and have a better priority or prioritize our personal gratification and instead of getting so upset about it and then we can be less disturbed by it. Not that we're going to be completely on a Rebzusha level that we won't even know what suffering means because of our intimacy with God but at least it won't disturb us to the extent that will deflate us and not allow us to be a person we need to be. Another thing which is also very important is when it comes to other people's suffering. Imagine your child has to go through some type of procedure and kicking and screaming, it hurts and in pain, and you tell your child, oh, get over it, it's going to be good in the end. That's a little obnoxious, won't you say? When we see others in pain, what we should focus on is that the person's in pain and try to help them and guide them through it. Sometimes, yes, we should guide them through the different paradigms to help them alleviate the pain, but never undermine their pain. There's a story told about the great tzaddik, whose name was Ramatul of Chernobyl. His father was known as the Rachman of Chernobyl. And once Ramatul of Chernobyl became very critically ill, and his chassidim davened him, he fell into a coma. And eventually, the Rebbe regained consciousness, and during the Thanksgiving meal of that he survived the illness, he told the following story. He said that when he fell into a coma, he felt his soul rising on high. And as he came on high, he was brought before the heavenly court, who were going to decide his fate. And his father came there, but he saw that his father's face was like blurred or something like that. He, I'm sorry, his father didn't recognize him. So he says, Dad, whose father was a great tzaddik of Nachum of Chernobyl, he says, you don't recognize me? He says, finally, his father asked him, what have you done that I don't recognize you? 
And I thought and thought. And finally he said, I don't think it was a sin, but whenever a person came to him that they had some type of illness, I told them that it maybe was due to the fact that they haven't behaved appropriately. Maybe they didn't give enough charity. Maybe they weren't observant enough. Maybe they did something in their relationship with God that caused them to have this terrible situation. And I quoted to them the proverb of King Solomon, for the one whom God loves, he chastises. Meaning that it's because God, he shouldn't, that he shouldn't worry because sometimes God makes those who he loves suffer. And this is what I used to tell people. That maybe it's maybe those people that God loves, he makes suffer the most. So even if you did do the right thing, you deserve to suffer. His father looks at him and says, What? When a person was in pain, you justified the pain? On the contrary, he said, you read that verse wrong. In fact, you put the comma in the wrong place. Those that are loved by God, you shall chastise God. That meaning, when you see a person in pain, don't find a reason or excuse why that person's in pain. Pray to God that that person should be helped. When we see another person in pain, it's very easy for us to say, you know, uh, that if he would have behaved himself, he wouldn't have been in pain. It's because he did this X, Y, and Z, that's why they're in pain. Absolutely not. Our job is to be there to alleviate the pain for another person and pray for their behalf and never put guilt on why they have that pain. And last but not least, even though Reb Zusha was on the greatest paradigm and we have to accept and he accepted the suffering that he had and he didn't view it as suffering or even when there is suffering even at whatever level it may be when do we accept that suffering? It's only once it's given to us. But we don't ask God for pain and suffering. We have to ask God to have a happy, healthy, successful, without any pain and suffering. And his reason is very simple. It's because God put us in this world to accomplish a mission. And if pain and suffering, or any tragedy, or anything is going to stop us from doing our mission, then that's not purposeful. And therefore, one should never ask God for any types of pain and suffering, even though he can have 17 excuses. And therefore, when we talk about asking God, we should ask God for everything the best. I should have lots of money, so I can give lots of charity. I should be very healthy, so I can do a lot of healthy mitzvahs. We have to ask God to be healthy and well and do the right thing so that we should stay healthy. Yes. How would anybody ask for suffering? We actually find in the Talmud, first of all, if I don't view suffering as something bad, <coughs> so then why shouldn't I ask for it? If it's another deeper relationship with God. <coughs> We do find in the Talmud that there were certain uh, Talmudic scholars who asked to suffer so they shouldn't suffer in the world to come. And they were reprimanded for it because since their suffering declined them from doing things that their purposeful mission in this world. But when we talk about the concept over here is, and we have to remember, I remember the story once somebody called me up and told me, asked me if I can pray for this person to die because they were suffering. So I asked them, if you believe in God, and that's why you're asking me to pray for this person, why can't I pray for this person to have a speed of recovery? He says, yeah, but he's too far gone, it's over. I said, if you're praying to God, God is the omnipresent, he can do everything. So if you can help this person, if you want him to pray him to die, why can't pray him that he should feel better and everything will? Why pray for suffering? And that's what I give an example, praying for suffering. Pray for happiness, pray for health, pray for good things. And then we won't have to deal with, God forbid, the opposite. Here's just a quick summary of what we learned today. 
Lesson four, hearing through pain. One, hardship and pain easily trigger a host of negative emotions that can cripple us emotionally, spiritually, and practically. To maintain our cheerfulness and avoid negative emotions, we must shift our perspective on suffering. Two, God loves us each infinitely, eternally, and unconditionally. God is also omnipotent in complete control. Therefore, he does not allow anything bad to happen to us. Whatever he allows us to experience falls into two categories of goodness, undisguised good and disguised good. Three, there are various ways of understanding the goodness hidden in hardship. A, as a means to an end, all pain and inconvenience lead to a greater good. B, direct goodness. All hardship is, itself, goodness in disguise. C, ultimate goodness. Hidden good is greater because it is goodness on God's terms. A goodness that is so great that we cannot possibly appreciate it. D, bonding. Covert goodness involves a greater degree of intimacy with God. In this paradigm, we no longer look for gifts, but for love. Four, living in alignment with our divine soul allows us to value closeness to God over personal gratification. Next week we move to, we've done dealing with the negative emotions, so we're going to start dealing with the positive emotions which is living joyfully, finding happiness and fulfillment in everything we do. Any questions? I know it was a little heavy today.